History Lecture 16, Rabbi Blyweiss, we are venturing into a new, new territory. Today, we're going into the kingship, the Malchus. The nation wants a king. They want it, and they say it explicitly in the verse, because that's what the Goyim have. And we're not supposed to be like that. Remember, we learn Tanakh, like we learn everything in life, we learn like Moser. And, and the Navi specifically includes this, the Navi in this case, which Navi is writing these words? Shmuel. So we're going to be in Shmuel for a while now. So Shmuel is writing um, this thing. You, you paid attention this, this morning in Slichos. Did you notice Shmuel pick a, um, crop up at the end of Slichos? He's crying out to Hashem in Mitzvah, which was the scene we reenacted yesterday. I don't know if anybody thought that. I, was, I made the association yesterday. So Shmuel, Shmuel is writing. He says they want a king to be like the other nations. That's not the way we're supposed to be. And it's incredibly common, prevalent motivation that we find we can trace through Jewish life through the ages and including till today we often aspire to being like the other nations what's wrong with that if anything's wrong with that what would you say is wrong with such a thing say it again it's assimilation is there any prohibition in such a such an attitude it's called it's you're not allowed to follow their statutes now it's true you have to define what that means. What exactly is a direct infraction, a violation of or what's called the laws of the non-Jews. Um, but certainly it's teaching us a general approach to life. Just because they do it doesn't mean that that's what we're, we should be aspiring to. And this is the problem, that this is the nation's motivation. You know, had they wanted a king not to be like the other nations, but because they felt that that would bring them closer to Kodesh Baruch Hu. Oh, now you're talking. Yeah, the minute you, you do something like this for a legitimate motivation, that's very different. Here, the problem was their motivation. They also didn't realize. You see, Shmuel is against it from the outset. If you, if you remember the sugi, when it, when it comes up in, in Sefer Shmuel, it's early on. And he tries to talk them out of it. They don't realize that monarchy, even though there's a lot of good to come out of it, and we talk about David Melech Yisrael is one of the great icons of all time, and Mashiach Ben David, who's going to come from him, will rise up and herald the, uh, the, the messianic era, the redemption of humanity. But as an institution, in many ways, the monarchy is going to ruin the nation. You think about Shlomo's wives, you think about Yeruvim's rebellion, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will, Bezras Hashem, soon enough. Uh, certain kings and their institutional avodazara idolatry but they don't know this at the time and they see you know all around the world they got these kings and they're, they're working it and they, they, it seems to be a system that works by them we want it by us the system of shoftim is unique to us and the Jews feel maybe it's not quite appropriate and so they, 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 they want something different to be like the nations you know today it's not so different um, democracy is the, is the preferred mode of government now in much of the world, certainly in the Western world. And so there's a presumption, and a lot of us have internalized this, maybe we don't even realize it. There's an assumption that democracy is, of course, a Jewish ideal. And it's something that we should all be striving for. Do you realize how many problems come out of democracy? It's true. It's better than a, uh, a totalitarian society, an oligarchy, all kinds of other systems that have been terrible and disastrous. What's that? Yeah. 
Anarchy is much worse, for sure. Democracy is superior. But people assume that democracy is what it's all about. Democracy gives way to pluralism. It gives way to everybody's the same. It gives way to what's called moral relativism, which means that there is no one right and wrong. There's no standard. The worst thing you can say about Hitler, for example, is that you personally don't agree with his, his policies. But you can't objectively call Hitler wrong from a purely democratic, pluralistic attitude. You'd have to say you don't agree with him. And if the majority voted for him, well, then maybe you were wrong, because democratically, they were right. So we don't know by democracy. There are a lot of flaws in democracy. Israel's government today very much mimicking the Goyim, because the secular Israelis are very beholden. They, 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 they follow all over themselves trying to imitate the Goyim. And um, their pa parliamentary democracy, which is the mode of government in the Knesset today, is very much it's a holdover from the British style, but it's very much an imitation of the Goyim. And it, leads to all kinds of problems, not the least of which, you think about this, we democratically vote in Israel, and that means that um, presently 12 members of the parliament belong to Arab parties, not all of them, but most of them actually desire the destruction of the state of Israel. Put aside politics for just a second and just consider that as a logical proposition, that, that's just crazy. Think about that. You get people democratically elected to a government that, that from the inside the government they're trying to subvert, they're trying to overthrow, because they were elected to it. Rabbi, that's a problem with parliamentary democracy. It's not a problem with democracy as a whole. Fair enough, fair enough. I'm using an illustration. We can debate the, the, we can debate the examples. The exa I, I, but you would, you, would, you, would, you would understand if I, if I go back and be more, more broad and just say that as, a, as an institution, democracy is a non-Jewish institution doesn't mean it's an ideal that we're striving for. We hold morality is defined in the Torah. If you have an idea and you want to say this is a Jewish idea, good luck, but we ask, as the Gemara always asks, and we just talked about this in Gemara earlier this morning, we ask, minale, minalecha. Where do you know that's from? Bring me a pasuk, bring me a diuk from a pasuk, bring me a svara. If you can't provide a proper source in Judaism, it's not Jewish, and chances are it's something that's flawed in, inherently, because it's human. And any algorithm of any human system is going to have all the flaws of all the humans that are behind it. Right? Torah we hold to be on a higher level. This is the debate between the people and Shmuel, and Shmuel gives way to the people. Last thought? Yeah, it can work the same for a system like God, though. You were saying earlier, I think yesterday, that even there are all these laws of the Haredi world, um, they still try and hold up the Torah as the best. But since it's comprised of humans, and it's still automatically going to be a flawed system. I, I, so I, I hear what you're saying. I, 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 let me try to respond. I hear what you're saying. System. For example, the United States government, great system, but the humans that are a part of it corrupted and they it. Okay, I, I, I hear that the RE raises the issue, I'll repeat in case anybody's listening. Isn't that just like saying that all these flawed religious Jews, you know, the system's great, the people are messed up. The people have their flaws, which is true. I think it's different when you're talking about Tyra, which is, a, which is a system, Torah Mina Shemaim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the Torah. We hold Torah to be perfect. It's an extension. It's, it's, we, we quote the Zohar, and you're going to hear me quote this frequently through the year. The Zohar says, Istak uvara alma. Hashem looked in the Torah, created the world. The Torah is the blueprint of the world. It is objectively true, and therefore inherently moral. The same cannot be said about any human system which will have the flaws of its inventors. Torah does, doesn't come from a human invention. When I say that, of course, the people fail to up, uh, uphold the values of Torah, that's true. That's a product of the people's flaws. But you can't compare democracy with Torah. 
let's not debate this. We could do it another time, but then, then it just goes back and forth. The people then, part of their argument is to say, Shmuel, you're a wonderful Navi, as we've seen. Nobody has any argument about Shmuel. Shmuel, one of the greatest leaders of all time, greatest human beings of all time. But they say, Shmuel and Navi is, is named, the street down the, down the way from us, named for the same Shmuel, Shmuel and Navi street. You know what I'm talking about? Go down to the first traffic light, make a right or left turn. That's Shmuel and Navi. The reason it's named that is if you continue going straight and out, as I drive home tonight, I'll be on that same street. You go out to Ramot. On the top of Ramot is the traditional gravesite with the Arabs called Nabi Samuel, uh, Kever Shmuel Hanavi. Um, it is Kever Shmuel Hanavi over there. You know the story of the tour guide going around Eretz Israel, and one day he says, and over on your left, you have the tomb of Shmuel the Navi, the, the great prophet. And then he continues, and in, in the next day, in a totally different part of the country, he says, and over on your right, you have the tombstone of Shmuel Hanavi. And somebody out there was listening. They're not always listening out there, but somebody was listening. They said, hey, 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 Mr. Tour Guy, you know, yesterday you told us that was Shmuel Hanavi. How could this also be Shmuel Hanavi? And the tour guide says, no, no. Sh- yesterday that was Shmuel Aleph. This is Shmuel Base. Ah, uh, okay. Um, there are about seven or eight different places all around the country that are called Kever Shmuel Hanavi. Will the real Shmuel please stand up? It's not clear. It's not clear at all if any of them are legitimate. I have a whole presentation, not for now. This one doesn't make much sense to me. I doubt the one that's over there by remote is really Shmuel Hanavi, and therefore the name of the street is probably questionable too. But you know what? Give Shmuel the name of a street, a street name. He deserves it. He deserves much more. Um, he he was uh, a really un, un, unimpeachable leader. Um, his sons were a slightly different story, and the nation doesn't want them. And they assume that after Shmuel, Yoel and Aviah, his sons, will be the next to lead. And they reject them. And the Pasuk says about them, they did not walk in Shmuel's ways. The, the Pasuk itself finds fault in his sons. But, just like we said by Hofni and Pinchas, the same Gemara, the same section of Gemara says, anybody who says that Yoel and Avia sinned, Eino Elatoa, is mistaken. What was their sin? They were good people. They were righteous. What was the difference? The Meiri explains like this. Shmuel was amazing. He was, he was beyond the letter, as we say, he went lifnim mishiras hadin. He went beyond the letter, beyond what was called for. He circulated the Torah. He made it accessible and available to everybody who wanted to teach it, who wanted to come and learn. Remember, he didn't impose on anybody. He, he brought the Torah to the people instead of waiting them to come for him. His sons did not have to do that. You know, you don't have to go beyond the letter of the law. You're allowed to keep the law. But Hashem judged them strictly, and it says they perverted justice because they, assume, they presume to have the, the authority of their father without taking on what's called minang of osam. They should have followed, if they want to follow in dad's footsteps, take on dad's practices. Dad went, they went, he went beyond the letter of the law. They should have as well. They didn't. And the people reject them and they reject, therefore, the whole institution of the shof team. And Hashem says, what does Hashem says about this prospect? Do you remember, do you remember the beginning of Sefer Shmuel? What does Hashem say about the monarchy? He says, okay, you can have a king. That's fine. You want a king? You can have a king. You know, the Torah itself allows for a king. We had it a few weeks ago in Parsha Shoftim. There's a whole sugi about having a king. Go look it up. In the Gemara in Makos, our Gemara discusses it. Um, you can have a king. But the Gemara in Makos also says, be careful of what you want. 
Because Biderech Sha'adam Holech Molichin so. You want a king, I'll get you a king, but you know you want a king for all the wrong reasons. So I'm going to give you a king. And it's going to lead to all kinds of wrong things. Um, the motivation was wrong, and therefore Chazal say, Chazal, you know how the Chazal explain this? They compare it with the, remember the sugya also we had it a few weeks ago, the Isha, Isha Yifastor, the beautiful woman, the Goyesha woman, the, the man, the soldier captures in battle. Yeah, it's ring a bell? And it's the very beginning of Parshish Kitetse. You're going to go to war, you're going to see a beautiful woman, you're going to want her. What does the Torah say about that? Nah, can you, can you marry that woman? Yeah, very good. Yeah, you can marry her. Good, good. You, can, you can shave her, shave her ball, cut her fingernails, make her, make her nice and repulsive, but you can marry her. What does Rashi say? What Rashi quotes the Zal? Dibra Torah Kenegad Yitzahar. Torah says, I know the Yitzah. If I say no, that's going to be hard for them. I'll say yes, but, and they'll learn how to work with their Yitzahara, and they'll learn that when they give in to the Yitzahara, it's ultimately going to be bad for them. Do you remember what comes out of that whole parsha? This Eishis Yifat Toar, and then the next, the next section of the Torah talks about a man having two wives, one he loves and one he hates. Who's the hated wife? That's the Ishak Yifat Toar. That was the woman that eventually is the result. Why does he hate her? Because we hate the result of our Yitzhahara. Somebody was just confiding in me, telling me his struggles, and, um, and he succumbed to the Yitzhahara. How about we keep it at that? Is that fair? You can fill in the blanks. Um, and he said he never felt as awful in his life. He, he totally gratified himself, and then he said he was in this darkest, grimmest, bleakest of places. And um, that's about right. That's a fair description. You know, I, most of us who succumb to our Yitzhahara probably feel that way. It's that feeling of nausea in your pit waking up the next morning after whatever the thing happened the night before and just feeling absolutely repulsed. What you're really experiencing is uh, that sense that I'm so much better than this and I just gave in to my animalistic nature. And um, that's what Chazal say. There's a better alternative. It's not correct. You can have war. It can have a, you can have a king. But for the wrong reasons, it's going to lead you to bad things. Um, by the way, it's never easy leading Kalal Yisrael. Remember how we described Arya? You with me still? Uh, yeah, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people. Am We're a tough group. This is a wonderful quote. Um, the first official president of the state of Israel was not a great person. His name was Chaim Weitzman, very problematic figure. But he had a great, hit, hit a great, hit a knack for one-liners. Um, met the American president at the time, President Harry Truman. He's from What's that? He's from Manchester. Yes, he was. He was. We forget. We forgive him that too. Um, the, uh, but um, Truman asked what it was like to be the president, the first president over uh, the state of Israel, as he was uh, in, in, in the new states, this is in the 1940s, and he said, Mr. President, you preside over 150 million citizens. I, Mr. President, preside over two and a half million presidents. It's a great line. Right. You ever try to lead the Jews? The first thing you should do, Mr. President, is this. They're, they're all going to tell you how to do your job. Okay? So it's not going to be easy to lead them. Um, it's true also that until today, on some level, we long for the more ideal period of the Shof team. After all, this is from a Victor Miller. He says, we, de- we say in davening, Hashiva Shoftenu Kabarishonah. Does that sound familiar? We say it in Shemona Return our Shof team like they were in the first. There was something really... Uh, a, a, a quality of perfection about those days that are gone once the kings come around. Somebody had a thought? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh-huh. 
Like what? What are you thinking about? Um, go out to war. Today it's become part of the deal, part of the package. It's true, and that's been incorporated in halacha too. What Miller's pointing out was we seem to function just as well, if not much better, in the days of the Shoftim, before, before the institution came, became, became established and entrenched. The first, the, we called Yoshua king, but somebody said that wasn't literal, it wasn't really the first monarchy. Who's the first king in the, in the, in the, in the true sense of the word? Shaul HaMelech. What do you know about Shaul? What can you tell me? Good, bad, middle, how do, we, how do Chazal relate to him? Why do we relate to Shaul? What do you know about him? Attractive. What is that? He was considered very attractive. Attractive, he was, that's true, but they have other things to say. What is, it, what is your, any notion of Shaul? So if you read the Psukim alone, which I don't think you should do, but if you just read the Psukim, you would, you would be very critical of him. You would come away with a pretty uh, mixed, mixed to negative impression. That's why we need Chazal to, to, to show what a complex figure he was and what a great figure he was. First thing to confront, the Pasuk says he ruled for two years. He did a lot in two years. He did a lot in two years, and um, it doesn't make sense. The Ralbad, the Grab, many of the Mefarshim say eh, it doesn't pan out. It doesn't work. And all you have to do is a little bit of math. It's not possible that he could have fought, fought all the wars that he fought. And then he went after David. He starts chasing David around the country, which takes um, 16 months, and pack that all into two years. No, not, not possible. The, the, the Gra gives an allegorical explanation. It's two years. We actually don't really know how long his, 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 his kingship lasted. Sometime, some period. Shalomelech. Again, it's two years, but it can't be. Again, what I just said, it can't be two years if you do the math. Must be more. He was Shaul ben Kish, pay attention to that word, Kish of Binyamin. Like Barak points out, he was extremely handsome. He was famed for his, 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 his physical beauty. He was very tall. He was described as a head taller than the average man. The average man 2,000 years ago was like five feet tall. Interesting, interesting, okay. So he was taller than that, whatever that was. One day, Shaul, a young man, goes out searching for his father's lost donkeys. Shmuel approaches him, offers him hospitality, and the Kaddish Baruch Hu gives Shmuel Nevoah, this is the chosen king, and Shaul doesn't know it. And the next day, Shmuel, I mean, the way, I remember when I first learned this, the way it comes out in Tzukim, it seems like Shaul wakes up, and Shmuel comes out and says, hi, would you like anything for breakfast? And then before Shaul can say anything, he dumps a bucket of oil on his head. It's not quite like that, but that, that's the image that stays in my mind. Like, what happened? Yeah, Shaul, Shaul doesn't know what quite hit him. He's anointed. He's anointed as the first king of, over the Jewish people, and he doesn't even realize it. And that's pro that last point probably is the most important thing. I don't think you could understand Jewish history without that. Okay, let's continue. The, um, Again? How long was it? Oh, no, nothing. It's nothing you really need. Okay. Uh, you saw through my shtick. The uh, Shaul becomes the king, or technically he's anointed, um, but Shaul is reluctant, and he doesn't grab it, and the people don't embrace him just yet. I mean, nothing's happened. And so Shmuel says, you don't trust me, you don't believe me, and he then describes to Shaul what's about to happen to him. He predicts three events. Uh, that are about to happen as Shaul returns home, and indeed they all come true. 
that's what, one of the nice things about being a prophet, you can predict things. Um, why Shaul? So here, the Tosefta in Brachos answers, Hashem chooses Shaul. What, what, was his, what was his, do you remember this, Barak? What's his, what's his great quality? More than any other quality. He was handsome, he was tall, there was lots of things. But what Midas stands out more than anything else? He was humble. Yes, thank you. Anava, his humility. That was, that was the ultimate quality that we seek in leaders. Shaul himself never dreamt he would be king. Who, who, me? I, I'm not the man for the... We've seen this before, do you remember? Moshe for sure. Who else have we seen? Aaron. Aaron, sure, but who's the leader of the Jews who, who absolutely is reluctant? We haven't seen David yet. Not, not yet, but you'll... It's somebody else we saw not long ago. Gidon. Gidon, the Shofet. Remember, little, I'm just a little guy from a little tribe. Menashe, don't, don't, you know. I'm the youngest in my family. Gidon has said, that's a quality we like. In our, in our leaders, and it's genuine, it's not an affectation, you know, it's not the guy in the job interview, what's your, what's your greatest weakness? I'm excessively humble, they say. No, no, not one of those guys. No, the guy is really humble. That's why Hashem, that's why Hashem chose Shaul. Um, he was shocked that he could be anointed, and that was, a real, that was the real thing. Um, he, later on, will be a Navi. For a period of time, he loses his Navu eventually, but he's a Navi, and that reflects his greatness in Torah and Midos. Nobody becomes a Navi in this period without filling the prerequisites of righteousness, of Torah, of, of greatness in individual areas. Shmuel takes him up to Mitzpah. Remember, we, we read about that in Slichos this morning when we, when we said Slichos. They go to Mitzpah and they anoint him formally up there. There's a real anointing that takes place. And Shaul tries to hide. He doesn't want any of it. He tries to run away. Um, some of the nation are not, are, are not happy about the choice of this king. They don't understand his genuine anava. They say, who is this guy? He can't be king. He doesn't think he has no self-confidence. People in the modern day also mistake humility for low self-esteem. Did you ever find that? Yeah. That's mistaken. If you have genuine humility, you have the best self-esteem. You know exactly who you are relating to a Kaddish Baruch You don't feel bad about yourself. Moshe Rabbeinu had a, had a decent sense of self-worth. He was simply humble. Um, he calls them as his first act as king to battle the enemy nation of Ammon, and they resist. They don't want it. We, we don't think you're the right king. So he, well, he, he, he does the logical thing under the circumstances. I'm sure if you were in his position, you might do the same. He, obviously, he takes a cow, and then he hacks it into 12 pieces, and he sends a piece to each of the tribes. You know, it worked so well the last time. It, pretty, it worked pretty well last time. Do you know what I'm thinking of? Remember I told you this was going to come up again, metaphorically? When did we last see 12 things hacked in pieces and sent to the 12 tribes? Very good. She wasn't a process, she was a concubine. Very different. She was the concubine from Giva, and there the man sent it to galvanize the people to war against Binyamin. So Shaul knows his history. He knows that they know their history because the Jews are, uh, in this week's Parsha, Hazina, we're going to read Zohor Yomos Olam. The Jews are walking history books. We used to be. Uh, this class is meant to try to address that. So we should become that way again. You should all, by the way, there's a, there's a major test at the end of the year. You have to know everything. Okay, so keep track of all the details. Uh, the more you know, though, really, it's good for you. You'll feel so much. I, I said this before. When you know all this, it goes in your kishkas. You feel like uh, you feel so consequential. Your life becomes part of this ongoing process of history. Uh, you should know, rack up all these details. That's why, man, this is so smart. 
it, even if you haven't been doing this since the beginning of the year, do one of you don't have to applaud, do it yourself. Then you're then that's the best applause. You will be so grateful that you wrote this down. Among other things, when you write it down, you're much more likely to remember it. He is, he is. And if you're nice, he'll share with you. And yeah, it could do it the lazy way. It is all recorded. Uh, and it's and now not only is everything recorded, but the thirteenth class is now officially also recorded as Baruch. Uh, as, uh, the one that I forgot my uh, my my machine, and now Barak just re uh, saved it, revived it. Good. So we we now have everything recorded, and you can access it. But if you take take notes in class, you'll have it for yourself. Um, Shaul is anointed. He the people resist. He wants the nation to go out to war. They don't agree. They don't listen to him, and um, and so he hacks. The, he sends a piece of the cow to twelve tribes, and he says, "You don't come. That's fine. I'll do the same to your cattle." I mean, it's incredible. That's very effective. Suddenly, he's got a whole army uh, amassed uh, right in front of him. They they uh, see his boldness, and they and, and he demands unity, and they and they come, and they go out to war, and they defeat Ammon handily at Yavesh Gilad. What happened in Yavesh Gilad last? That was the place that they that they destroyed to take the four hundred virgins for the men of Binyamin, and they go to the same place and trounce Ammon. The people recognize that the victory is from Hashem, but this one's different. In all previous battles, it was only Hashem, clearly. Here, for the first time in history, um, the miracles are a little bit less obvious. Hashem makes it appear that Shaul was the catalyst to victory. Why? Yeah, Hashem wants this initial monarchy to fly. He wants it to work. He wants the people to, um, to to regard their king well, and so it appears that the victory welcome. It appears that the king that the king really is the man for the job, and they endorse him and they accept they accept Shaul resoundingly. Shaul has several sons, one of whom is most famous, very righteous individual. Anybody know his name? Yonasan. Yonasan, a, a, a wonderful figure we're going to see a little bit about. Um, Yonasan's first real claim to fame is he is a great, valiant warrior. We're sweeping through all of Jewish history, so you just came in as we find ourselves in the, near the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, as Shaul becomes the king and his son Yonasan becomes a great uh, warrior for the Jewish people. And he overcomes, he, he battles the Plishtim in Giva, Giva where we had that concubine. Um, Shaul blows the shofar. The Philistines come back, they reassemble, and this time the Jews are, 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 are afraid. And Shaul doesn't know what to do. Yeah? With David, sure. We're, we're, we haven't met David yet, so I'm more or less going in chronological order, so you're ahead of me. David hasn't emerged yet, that's coming right around the corner. We'll meet David very, very soon. Um, meanwhile, there's this battle with the police team who are not yet destroyed. Yonasan surprises them in battle, but, but they're still coming back. Shaul approaches the, the, the Navi, Shmuel, who's still there. Shmuel tells him, wait. What's the muster of waiting? What do you show when you wait? Patience. Patience in, in, in terms of pure Jewish midos. By waiting, what would this reflect? Think about it. Not, not a big question. If you wait when you're terrified and you want to act, but the Navi tells you to wait, what do you show? Self-control, which reflects a higher value? Oh Fear of God, which all emuna. Des well, we show des, but emuna shows we're not desperate. Emuna, or I was thinking of a different word, bitachon, bitachon, which is something we're amassing this time of year as we're um, we're just a little over twenty four hours away from Yom Hadin. 
On Yom Adin, on Rosh Hashanah, we know that Hashem establishes everything in the world. Everything is set out. Who's going to win this battle? Hashem's in charge of that. When I wait, because the Navi, who's just a mouthpiece of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, he's telling me to wait, what I'm really expressing is the realization, the internalization of, I know, Hashem's in charge. You say wait, okay. You should have this in all areas of life. You want to make a living? You want to make a parnasa? Have bitachon. You want to get married, find the right shidduch? Have bitachon. People lack it today. It's a major quality. You should work on this one. Uh, major priority in Musr. Shmuel tells Shaul, wait. And he does, to his credit. Seven days, he waits. And then he gets impatient. And the Shem Shemaim, he does something that he's not asked to do. He brings a korban. Sacrifice to Hashem. He does it outside the Mishkan. Is that a problem? No. Not at this time in history. It's one of the few times in history, remember we said this yesterday, Bamos are permitted. You're allowed to bring a korban. The Mishkan presently is in Nov. Part of the 13 years the Mishkan is located in Nov. You could bring Bamos. You could go to your backyard and bring, build an altar and offer a sacrifice. That's fine. But this is not fine. Not because it's Obama, but because he was told to wait and not do anything. And he's the king, though, too. And he's the king, so he's, you know, wait, be careful when you're a leader. Hashem expects more from you. He, he may, this is his first major mistake as king. He does a L'shem Shemaim. But, you know, you can make a mistake, L'shem Shemaim. It's still a mistake. Excellent. So the, it, it's a beautiful parallel there, for sure. I mean, you know, in, in, in Tyra, our great figures have their flaws. They're meant to be italicized and understood. Moshe's flaw would be my virtue, right? He's, he's definitely towering over me, but he still has a flaw. Only for other religions, they, you know, I always use the Pope as the example for the Roman Catholic Church. He's infallible. He never makes mistakes. I, that's not a figure you can learn from. He's not a role model. These are role models because they're flawed and they struggle with their flaws and try to overcome them. That's something I can learn from. So Shmuel, Shaul, excuse me, makes this mistake. He doesn't wait and Shmuel doesn't miss a beat. He condemns him. He says, you violated the mitzvah that comes from Hashem. Your kingdom won't last. That's it. The monarchy, your, your monarchy is, is going to be limited because of this. Um, the Gemara explains he waived the honor of the Malchus, and that's why he didn't have a, an ongoing monarchy, even though he had the precious quality of anav of humility. He should have known when that's not appropriate. Um, and we're going to see he's going to make one massive mistake that's around the corner that um, ultimately will destroy the man. And you, you, you probably know the mistake. We'll get to it soon enough. In the next significant episode, Yonasan the warrior surprises the police team at a place called Michmas, which I love to do. I love teaching right here. I'm very spoiled. I feel uh, living in Eretz Israel, living in Yush being in Yerushalayim, Yerukodesh, to teach this is, uh, is really an out-of-other-worldly out of, out of kind of experience. I can go like this and point north of Yerushalayim. It would be, I mean, it's, it's a drive, about a half-hour drive north of here to a place called Michmus. The, the Arabs have a village there, which is biblical Michmas, probably. And that's where, this is a great little episode, Yonasan leads a surprise attack of Michmas. They're not, they don't expect it at all. Um, they approach in the middle of the night on their hands and feet. When they finally, you know, surprise, they get there, the, the police team who are based there are, are shocked, are horrified. Um, they panicked from the inside, 
and then there's a miraculous earthquake, and the whole thing is a, is, is a disaster for the police team. Yonasan wins. Cut. Fast forward, I'll be doing this a lot in history. I like, I like, I like cross-comparing history, and you're encouraged to do the same. World War I, in the same part of town, who's battling whom? In Eretz, Palestine. World War I, north of Yushalayim, who's battling whom? The British against the Ottomans. Excellent. The British against the Ottomans. And in, in the, that same area, there's an Arab enclave, and the British don't know what to do. And one of the British men is carrying around his copy of the, what they call, Old Testament, Christian, Christian British. And they're carrying around his Old Testament, and he takes it and he reads this passage. And he said, what a great idea. Look, it worked for Yonasan back in the day. Let's do it again. The British lead a surprise attack on the Arabs, and they conquer it. Yeah, Mamish mimicking the attack in many different ways. Great little anecdote, great little story. Um, you know, it's good to follow the Bible. It could, it could, it could help you. There is, however, um, uh, one, call it a minor difference between Yonasan on the one hand and the British on the other hand. Yonasan was acting L'Shem Shemaim. He had what we call Siatha Dishmaya Hashem's help. The British, eh, not so much. The British will withdraw from Eretz Palestine, as it were, with their proverbial tail between their legs, uh, running away on May, 4, May 13th, 1948. <coughs> One of those, right? Uh, very, very, and, and they did not have Siak Dishmaya, so they might have won the initial battle, but they most certainly lost the long-term war in Palestine. In the initial one, in the initial one, for sure. It was clearly all from Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Which is, I think that's amazing. I mean, there was two people. Right. The most famous episode in, in uh, with Shaul Hamelech involves his battle against our eternal foe, Amalek. And he rises to this challenge, and he mainly does it. And most of us would have gotten an A, almost plus, if we were Shaul. One mistake, one mistake. But again, we expect everything from our tzaddikim. The mission was, like our mission till today, we have to destroy, erase the memory of Amalek, destroy them utterly. Man, woman, child, cattle. Everybody has to be wiped out. It needs to be understood as well. It's not a sheer on Amalek per se. This strikes some people in the modern liberal mindset as racist, as intolerant, as problematic. Um, there's a way of understanding this. Amalek is evil through and through. Their quality is such that they inherit from, from, from Esau is, is one that cannot tolerate Kedusha in the world. They stand as a collective impediment, an obstacle to bringing the knowledge of a Kaddish Baruch in the world, which is what we're doing in this world. That's why Hashem created the world. That's why they have to be destroyed. Shal goes up. He defeats them. He destroys them. He doesn't fulfill the mitzvah to the nth degree. He leaves the animals alive and he spares the life of Agag, the king himself, who's alive overnight. And Hashem tells Shmuel that he, as it were, regrets, not that Hashem has any regrets, but the word is he regrets anointing Shaul the king. And Shmuel blasts Shaul for his terrible mistake. And Shaul comes and he says, please give me a second chance. I know I made a mistake. I had compassion on the king. It was coming from a good place. Compassion is a good thing, no? We value it as a, we, we call it a virtue. Said, I had compassion for the king. That was Shaul's defense. And most of us would say that's pretty reasonable defense. But Aryeh, say it. 
No compassion for Apollo. Yeah. If you, and this is where Chazal derived a critical principle that we're going to see again and again in history too. When a person has compassion in the, that's misplaced, that's applied to wicked individuals, what eventually will happen is that person will be cruel to those who deserve compassion. Meaning everything, all the wires will get crossed and everything will get messed up in the, in the works. And that's what happens to Shaul. We're going to see this soon enough. When Shaul goes crazy and goes after David and Melech, he'll do despicable things to people who are worthy of, 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 of complete of, of kindness. And he destroys them. And, and yet he was kind to Agag. And um, Shmuel predicts the king, his kingdom will be torn away. It will be given to another. Um, Shaul, in the process of begging, tears his mantle. And Shmuel says, oh, that's, that's, that's not a coincidence. That's symbolic. Your kingship is going to be torn away from you. Shmuel gets up and does the job, hacks Agag to pieces. The king is, 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 is killed right in front of them, right on the spot. Um, and that's the last time that Shmuel ever sees Shaul, at least in this world. Wait, does he have a kid? Agag has a kid, right? But unfortunately, that night, the damage was done. Agag cohabited with a woman who became pregnant. And of course, what will come out of that union? Oh Haman. Haman will descend from that union. In other words, Amalek, which could have been and should have been destroyed. We read all this. Don't you remember this? In Parsha Zahor, this is the Haftarah, this whole episode that we're, that we're describing right now. And that's really, you know, what, it's, the, it's the Jewish version of what we call in the modern world the butterfly effect. One little act today, either positive or negative, will beget significant uh, other acts, somewhere domino, domino theory down the line. And that's exactly what happens here. Um, this is the last then. No, no more will Shmuel go up to see, to see Shaul. I didn't say this. Where is Shaul's monarchy based? Where is the capital? There's no Yerushalayim in these days. And Nov is not really a center where the Mishkan is. So, so um, Shaul is based in? No. Giva or what's called Givat Shaul. Givat Shaul, and that's in Jerusalem, misnamed. The place that they call Givat Shaul, where there's a swimming pool for the, the, the Blind and Deaf Institute over there, the swimming pool, all that, that's not the, probably, almost certainly not the, the, the biblical Givat Shaul. The biblical Givat Shaul, I pass and I look at every morning um, on my way down, and it's literally walking distance from our yeshiva. We can walk due north of here, and there's a place perched over modern-day Pisgat Ze'ev, and it's, you can see it from a lot of, maybe in one, one tiul, I'm, I'm a tour guide too, so in one of the tiul, tiulim that we'll do, we can see it from all different vantage points. I'll say, oh, there it is, there's Yiva Shaul. Um, visible for all kinds of reasons. Anyway, um, that's, that's where he's stationed, probably, and Shmuel will no longer visit them. The final resolution to this conflict that should have happened between Shaul and Agag will take place when? Uh, years hence, between their two descendants. As we said already, Agag has a descendant named Haman. And Shaul has a descendant also. Who's Shaul's descendant? Mordechai ben Yair ben Shimi ben Kish. And Shaul is ben Kish. So actually, it's abs beautifully, measure for measure, as all of history is, everything. We're going to go to Olam Haba, and we're going to see what in this world looked like a bunch of snarled knots. You ever see a tapestry? On one side, it's a beautiful pattern. On the other side, it's a bunch of, uh, of snarled, snarled knots. doesn't make any sense. So this world are all the uh, knots. 
We're going to Olam Haba, we're going to see the patterns unfold beautifully, harmoniously. Everything comes together. So what was neglected in the generation of Shaul and Agag, eventually, Kaddish Baruch gives the world a second chance, will be resolved in the days of Mordechai and Haman, their descendants. Hashem tells Shmuel, go see Yishai in Beit Lechem. Beit Lechem, which is now due south of Yerushalayim, Go see Yishai. Yishai, of course, is the grandson, you remember? Boaz. Boaz and Rus. Boaz begets Oved, begets Yishai. And go see them. One of his sons will be the new king. One of the sons will be the new king. Um, Shmuel goes to see him. He visits, he visits Yishai. He meets the seven oldest sons. He's not satisfied. No. By the way, they're all beautiful, perfect tzaddikim. But it's not good enough for Shmuel. He says, is there anybody else? Like, yeah, but he's a kid. He said, well, send for him. And they send for the youngest one. He's tending sheep. Notice this tending sheep. Who else tends Moshe. sheep? Moshe, Avra. Our Avos, our Imahos, Rachel, Leah. They have all the Gedoli tend sheep. So David is, is a shepherd. And he comes. And he's, he's describing the Pasuk. He's gingy. He's redheaded. Okay. David was a ginger. Handsome, strikingly handsome. His fine eyes. He is he is brave in war. He's he's wise and prudent in speech. Hashem says, yeah, that one. Shmuel takes a horn of oil and anoints him. I don't know if it's quite as dramatic as in Shaul, dramatic as in Shaul's days, but here, kid, what? What was that for? David takes it better than Shaul does. He anoints him. Um, Hashem's spirit, his Ruach Tovah, is with David. And that has all the mystical implications that you imagine it means. David is now a new person. Wasn't that done in secret? What's that? Wasn't that done in secret? Yes, it was that. Thank you. Thanks for the, I don't give everything, but thanks for the qualification. Yes, it's done secret. People are not aware now that David is going to be the new king. That's not going to happen for a little while. There's going to be a process before David emerges as the, as the legitimate king. Shaul affected, right, it's going to be a while, 16 months. 16 months. Shaul is still effectively, for all intents and purposes, the, the real king. But Hashem's spirit now departs Shaul officially and goes to David. In the case of Shaul, not only does Hashem's spirit depart, it's replaced with what's described as a ruach ra'ah. Now, we know of a ruach ra'ah every morning when we wake up. It's on our hands. That's why we need Negovasser as the only antidote. You've got to wash three in the grasses four times on each hand. Right? Ruach Ra'ado is a very profound, it's like an evil demon, an evil spirit that will take over Shaul on a certain level. He experiences, he goes into what can be described as melancholia. He becomes, or if you want, he becomes manic depressive. And nothing will placate the poor king except for music. And there's one musician who's unparalleled, he's a, he's a sublime musician by the name of David himself, multi-talented individual. And he sends for David, come play the lyre. L-Y-R-E, it's often translated as a harp. It's a different kind of instrument than what we have today as a harp. Um, and when David plays the music, temporarily at least, the, uh, the, the Ruach Rod departs from Shaul, and Shaul loves David. And he says, you're gonna be my arms bearer. I want you present at all times. That's short-lived. The fact that he loves him, listen, what's not to love? David is a pure tzaddik, and, uh, and he has all these wonderful virtues that come from Hashem. And he, and, he, and, he, and he solves Shaul's problems. And Shaul's got problems. 
And the next problem on the agenda is a big, big, fat problem in the form of? No, no. Big, big, fat problem. You all know who it is. Uh, really tall, Goliath. Um, in, in Hebrew, Goliath. You did say it. You got it. Nine Amos tall. This is an Amma, right? Nine of these. Uh, and he's the new arsenal that the police team are, th are using to threaten Israel. How does how did the police team get such an arsenal? How do you get such a big man from the uh, pesky police team? Do you remember this? One theory. This is not necessarily true, but it, it's a shot. It's a possible reading. Remember how they got uh, how one one reading has it that that they got Goliath. Do you remember this? We said this recently. Right. That's one 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 shot. Is that he was the, he was a descendant of Shimshon when they had Shimshon could have it with all those women to reproduce his strength. That was somehow distorted and manifested in the form of Goliath. And Shaul and the Jews are terrified. And Shaul, the Marantinis tells us, makes an inappropriate request. Uh, there are three who made inappropriate requests. Two, Hashem is kind with them and answers them nicely. One doesn't make out so well. We'll look, go look up the Gemara in the beginning of Tainis, Dalad and Aleph. For the other two, Shaul's inappropriate request is as follows. Anybody who can defeat the police team, can, who can defeat Goliath, I'm going to hand them my daughter in marriage, Michal. Michal Bashal will be his wife. Hashem is kind with him, answers him appropriately, and sends David. But can you imagine? You know, some guy who steps forward who's in absolute Russia, he's going to marry off his daughter to, uh, to such a guy. Uh, Michal does very well in the Shidduch scene. Um, David is on his way to supply his brothers in war. Uh, he's going to give them food. But he sees the people's plight, and he says, I'll come for the job. And he's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and all, for it, all, all full of youthful, eager enthusiasm. Daniel, right? How old is David? Yeah. yeah. How old is David at this point? Because he said he started as like a child. 17. 17. 17. Who's 17? Who else was 17? No, no, I know. But no, in addition to you, Yosef, when he was sold to Egypt. 17 is youth, is the, is the full bloom of youth. Uh, youthful idealism. And he sees the people's plight. Say it again. Great grandson. Yeah, no, he didn't know no gender surgery or anything. Yeah. Great grand. It's, we just did it. It's Boaz and Ruth, Oved, Yishai, David. Um, so he's there delivering supplies to the brothers, but the people are up service. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to confront Goliath. He volunteers. Shaul is there at the war front. He says, okay, you can go out and battle him, but I'm not sending you out there. You're not going to be a sitting duck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put armor, proper battle armor on you. The battle armor, heavy metal, uh, weighs down on the small, small frame of David, and it's kind of a comic image. He's, he can't walk in the armor, so he casts it aside, and instead of the armor, famously, he grabs his staff, he grabs five smooth pebbles, and a sling. Oh, are you great, Jake? You're on fire today. Yes, it does seem, there is a shot that says, who remembers this? Very beginning of time, right? Very beginning of our class, we talk about certain elements that wind their way through history, one of them being the matin. The same, remember the Mate? Moshe, the Excalibur, and Aaron, and it could be that this is the same staff, right? And the cloak, the cloak is the same cloak. We're going to see this in Shlomo and Melech's time as well. Cloak of Odi, Jake, very good. Unclear, unclear. This is a shot given 
in, in a medrash, so in other words, it's nothing explicit, it's not a central part of the story, but what it does, my, my claim is that these metaphors that wind their way through history and eventually Melech Mashiach will have the staff and he'll have the cloak and he'll ride the donkey and all of these things will come together is, is, is to reinforce this notion that of the tapestry that I mentioned before. Everything is part of Hashem's beautiful plan, all by design, all the players are here for a purpose, everything that happens to us, kul da'avid rahman al-latav, avid is Rabbi Kiva teaches, everything that Hashem does is for the best, and when you have that, when you're holding that staff, you are the inevitable man for the job. And he steps forward with his staff and his pebbles and the sling, and one of the famous great images of history, he, uh, he steps forward bravely, and Goliath sees this little kid, as it were, and he mocks him. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he laughs at his, at his, uh, at his foe. He's, he threatens him, I will put your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the fields. And David's smiling and completely unthreatened. David responds, you come at me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, and I'm coming at you, B'Shem Hashem, who you've taunted. Look out. And uh, David hails back. He takes the sling, and in the first shot, he pelts Goliath in the forehead. Goliath falls face first down. David decapitates the giants, takes the head as a victory sign. The Plish team, interestingly, they're a bad lot, but into their credit here, the Pasuk says... Um, they flee and they recognize the godless of Hashem. Meaning they don't make David into a, some kind of a Lodazar or anything like that. Sometimes, it's interesting, we're going to see this also, notice this pattern in history. A lot of the time, the people who have the best reactions in history are the Goyim. Jews, not always. We'll experience miracles left and right, we'll say, oh no, it was the rain. Or we'll explain it through some of the natural cause. But it takes the Goyim sometimes to say, no, 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 look, it's Mesa Shem This comes from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. We're going to read Sefer Yoda, for example, on Yom Kippur in a few days. Right? Well, who are the people who recognize Yad Hashem? Look at the sailors. The sailors recognize the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Look at the people of Nineveh, the Goyim in Nineveh. They say, oh, make Tshuva? Okay, we'll make Tshuva. Against Yonah's better interests, they say, oh yeah, we'll make tshuva. The Goyim often recognize this. Sometimes we have to be far away sometimes to see the truth. So they saw the truth, they fled. Um, and David now emerges as a prominent figure. And it's at this point we learn about um, the ultimate friendship in the world. Ilan, you asked about this before, are you with us? The ultimate friendship, who are, who are posited. The Mishnah Pirkei Abbas tells us, K'nei l'cha chaver, acquire a friend. Um, friendship should never be fallen into casually as most of our friends. You know, why are you friends with that guy? Ooh, you know, I grew up with him next door. That's not a good friend. I mean, necessarily. He might be, but it's not necessarily a good friend. A friend should be somebody that you see, that's a great human being who I really admire. I want to draw close to them. Maybe I can learn something from them. Maybe maybe I can give to them. Maybe I can do things, you know, and, and, and all for mitzvah for purposes. Well, they can't be. Nobody ever is. Meaning, what it, what it means is that each can learn from one another in different areas. And the ultimate friendship is Yonas, as described by the Torah, in the, in, excuse me, the Tanakh, and as described by Chazal, Yonasan and David. Yonasan, the son of Shaul, with David. Yonasan loves David, it's described like his own self, fulfilling the Pasuk. Well, um, so, uh, love your fellow like yourself. And in Hebrew? You should love your neighbor as yourself. They are the epitome of this. Um, 
they, and and um, to show this, Yonasan, who's from the monarchy, he's from the the, uh, the kingly caste. He gives his garments to David. That's how much he, he literally gives of himself. The um, Gemara and Baba Metzia that we learned last year says there were three great, in addition to the obvious ones, there are three subtle, unvisanim, humble people in the world. And it cites Yonasan, and then much later the Bnei Becerra and Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. Um, and then the Gemara says, but Yonasan was humble, but it may not have been so humble. Why was he humble? When he gives his garments to David, what does that show symbolically? I should be next in line to be king, but I recognize David's greater, and therefore I'm deferring to him. When somebody can have something, and they say, but he's more qualified for it, that's really hard to relinquish. You know, you're going to relinquish the kingship, your whole, your whole chance at greatness in this world, all because the other guy's better? That's godless. That was Yonah's son. And, and, and the Gemara cites him for it in his humility, although it takes it back a little bit. It says, he was humble, but in a sense he had no choice. He already saw that David was, David was the people's choice. Everybody had rallied already around David, um, and so, and so Yonasan did, perhaps was the inevitable. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says that any love, any ahava, hatluya b'davar, do you know this Mishnah? I recommended this to my, my Gemara. Um, learn Pirkei Avos this year. You should know it. You should, you, should, you should, for example, when I say, what is the Mishnah of Pirkei Avos? You should have this. Um, if you want to be a card-carrying Jew, you need to know Pirkei Avos. So the Mishnah says, love that depends on something. Ava tuya b'davar. When the thing ceases, the love ceases. Conditional love is not a good kind of love. An example that's brought, who is the epitome of Ava tuya b'davar? Amnon and Tamar. We're going to meet, coming up, um, David's children who are half brother and half sister. Uh, terrible story. What's that? That's Christian. Well, that half brother, half sister. They shared. Oh, they might have had the same mother. Uh, it was it same mother. Uh, it's complicated. Complicated. It's, yeah. Look it up for me. Look it up and clarify for me. I'm not sure about that. Um, then it says, "What is the love? The ultimate kind of love? That's ava unconditional love." And it sets up the the example, the epitome of unconditional love is David and Yonasan. Um, Last comment on, on their friendship. Um, today, in, in the Knesset, it was, it was like a, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, one of the secular um, members of the Knesset, a woman by the name of Yael Dayan, whose father was very famous in Israel, Moshe Dayan was the big general, the eye patch. Everybody knows the iPad, Moshe, Moshe Dayan. Anyway, Yael Dayan was a very, is, remains very liberal left wing. And she, you know, politicians live for making controversy. So she, you know, they know what they're doing. They know, they know how to press people's buttons. So she said, oh, everybody knows that David and Yonasan were homosexuals. No? You ever heard this such a thing? Right? That's, that's what she, yeah, obvious. They loved each other, so they were, they were gay. No? That, that was the way it goes. What's very tragic about her attitude, and she's not alone, she represents a whole outlook today. It's, it's not impossible, but extremely difficult for the modern Western secular mindset to conceive of love between two men in any pure way, immediately when they see this immense love that exists between these two men, the, the tendency is to sexualize it. When so obviously and so clearly in the Tanakh and in Chazal, there is no intimacy at all implied, and it's a problem today, we're supposed to take a cue from this, men have difficulty in relationships because uh, they become so self-conscious, they should be seen as overly effeminate or something like that if they should have too much of a, of a close friendship. And I was taught by, it was last year or the year before, a modern term for that. They call it, they, men, men can't be good friends. They have to call it a special name bromance. called bromance. That was no, the term. But Rabbi, it's not, 
that's literally the term for two guys being very, very, very close friends. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's common in today's day and age. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm only pointing out that it's a bit, it's a bit of a, it's kind of pathetic that you need a term for it. I mean, we all crave deep friendship. Why can't you just say he's a good friend? Well, whatever makes them more comfortable about it. Good, I'm not against it. I'm just, I'm using that to illustrate that something's flawed in our mindset. And, the, and, the, and what's correct in the mindset is David and Yonasan, who had a pure love that's an icon, it's a model for us, the image that we're striving for. I don't know if they were or they were, but it's besides the point. It's a modern reading. Uh, one of the things we said in the introduction to the class, I don't think you were here for the day, was there's a tendency in history to project our own sensibility back in time. You know, well, it's true for me today, so this way it must have been inevitably always. No, no, these people were living in a stratosphere beyond our own. They were so far above and beyond what we can imagine, even though they were relatable on some level, we can understand them, but they're different. And don't project our own very usually lowly kind of ex experience and cultural identifications with what's going on with them. But in what events, though, there could be a reading of the, of the, of the Tanakh that says that they were homosexual. Show me they, a proof for that. Oh, it says specifically that they sealed a covenant. They've said that multiple times, they, and they've never explained what the sealing of the covenant was. Where do you see anything, uh, anything intimacy implied? I mean, it's sealing the covenant. It's not any... I'll, I'll tell you why that's an impossible reading. Clearly, the Pasuk says, without any ambiguity, that, that Mishkav Zachar, we're also going to read this also in the afternoon of Yom Kippur, Mishkav Zachar is a, is a grave offense. If there was even a hint, even a possibility that that was shot, we'd find that somewhere, that there was a problem. Nobody ever, not only did they not indict... David and Yonasan for their relationship, it's held up as the ideal epitome of a good relationship. Plus Benjamin had children and so did David. I mean, Benjamin had a child. I, I, you, have to, you have to do better in coming up with a proof. I don't, I don't hear any proof uh -huh. in any of that, not, not in the least. Okay, yeah, Ilan? I think it's interesting when you talk about like, the like, David and Yonasan could have been right here. Mm -hmm. like, so it's hard to like, associate it, like, like they could have been like, right here. Right here meaning? Oh, stick standing in this exact location. Yeah, like where, where we are. Like, yeah, 100%. And, and in fact, most great people at most points in history did stand around here. You know what I'm saying? Like right here. They were right down the street from there, right from the base of Mikdash. Um, I'll, give you another, I'll give you another reason why. Chazal were not estranged from such notions of, mich, of what's called mishkav or of men with men. It's all over the place. Look at Rashi in the very beginning of the Torah. It talks about the sin of the, of the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world, as being men with men. Uh, we, and we find that a recurrent thing. Think of Stone, Anshe Stone, the men of Stone. Think about Potiphar and his designs on Yosef, meaning, meaning there, there are recurrent themes of men behaving this way. Um, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I skipped also Ham. What did Ham do there with Noyach? So in other words, it, it comes up, and so it's not that they didn't know about this. So if there was any such indication by David and, Yo and Yonasan, somewhere it would come out. Again, again, it would have been identified. It's never identified. You have no proof. Okay. Right, what you're saying is that the fact that it wasn't identified before doesn't mean that we shouldn't have that, that means that we shouldn't identify novels clearly in some case. You'd have to bring a compelling proof from the text. The way the style of Chazal. If it's not there, you can't read into it. That's my point. Shaul appoints David over his army. He recognizes in him a great that he's a great warrior, that he uh, that he has, that he's the love of the people. And then he gets really angry. 
because he overhears the women singing David's praises. They say, David slays tens of thousands, Shaul slays in the thousands. That was the song they made up about them, and it does not make Shaul a happy warrior. Uh, and he becomes jealous. He starts to regard David suspiciously, and he decides David is trying to be, and you don't want these words associated with yourself, Morid b'malchus, he's, he's trying to rebel against me and take my title from me. Morid b'malchus is a capital crime. He's subject to the death penalty, and Shaul understands that David has to be killed. And he's the authority to do that, and the next day, in secret, because he knows that David's very popular and he doesn't want to make waves with the people, he tries to kill David with a spear, and he's not successful. And David continues, and he's successful in everything everything. So Shaul tries to set him up. The next episode is Shaul sends, sends him. He says, you know what? You want to marry my daughter Michal? I know I promised if you beat Goliath that you can, you can marry her. But one more little test. I'd like you to bring me a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. Assuming, yeah. Which usually if you, a hundred foreskins, no, no. A hundred foreskins. Orlas from the Plish team. Assuming that not in a million years could he succeed, one of them found to kill David, which is what he'd hoped. And uh, to his consternation, David came back with a little baggie of 104 skins. 104 skins. Yes. Who were the four people in history that never committed Why do you ask? It's a little off topic right now. Why do you ask? I'm just thinking like all these people are so righteous, they all just like. Um, right. Not committing sins, you have to compare that, Bryce. Not committing sins doesn't make a person necessarily, in terms of ranking Sitkus, the greatest tzaddik either. Meaning, meaning when we, when we, and this is illustrating, further illustrating the, the point that I keep making, which is that when we see great people, as we've seen every single great person with flaws, what we're seeing is that that flaw is relative to that person. So if you're this immense tzaddik, who has this flaw, so it appears in the, in, the, in, the, in the pasuk as being a huge flaw, when in fact, in reality, it's not so much. The fact that these people didn't even have sins doesn't mean that they were the greatest tzaddikim of all times. Right, they would just not have had that. So I'm trying to think of who they were to think of what kind of... Yeah, I don't have it up to my head either. Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, I'll get it, I'll get it for you. It's, it's here, it's in my notes. I just don't, I, I don't want to miss quality. Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know off the top of my head. Presumably, we don't call it a chait if it's before person's mukhiyah and mitzvah, so it has to be from after the bar mitzvah. From pure svar, I answer the question. I don't know, I, I, I don't know otherwise. Um, okay. David returns with, with the foreskins. Shaul realizes Hashem is with him, and now he starts to be afraid, very afraid of David. Because now Hashem is on his side, what's going to happen? David, though, continues, continuing the routine, is playing the lyre, L-Y-R-E, playing, playing the music for Shaul. And again, Shaul tries to kill him. David escapes narrowly. He goes home, and there's a famous scene where his wife, now he's married to Michal, and she helps him escape out of her window. Famous night, she, he goes out by night, she very cleverly puts trophim and a pillow of goat's hair in the bed so that it looks like David's sleeping to fool her father. And he comes charging in thinking that's David, and it's not, most definitely not. Um, Shaul declares publicly that David is Chayiv Misa, he's subject to capital punishment, 
at a Rosh Chodesh event, and this begins the famous chase of David around the country. That night that David escapes from Shmuel, I said, from, excuse me, from, from Shaul, where, where does he go? I just gave it away. To Shmuel, and what happens that night? Not much. He just masters all of the Torah in one night. What it takes a great scholar to learn to master in a hundred years, David somehow, as a product of his great personality and, uh, and Sitkus, is able to master from Shmuel overnight, becoming the next link in the, in the Holy Messiah. Um, on Monday, Sunday is a is Tom Gedalia. Um, Monday, Bezat Hashem will resume, and we're going to chase. We're going to follow Shaul as he chases David around the country to some to some more very iconic, important episodes. Last question. Go ahead. Chase David around the country. He died a long time ago. Oh no, that's different. No, it's not even theoretically possible. In these days, the oral tradition was that. First of all, they were on an immeasurably higher level where you don't really, picture the smartest guy you've ever met. He's sitting in sheer and Rebbe says, blip, and the guy got all the tosfos in an instant, right? Now multiply that by a thousand times, that's the level they were on intellectually, something we can't even fathom. So not only that, this was a time when the Torah was oral, so the code of giving it over was done through prophecy, it was a totally different mechanism. Today it's not oral anymore, it's written up in what we call Shas and Poskim. It's, it's, you have to learn all of Shas in order to even begin the process. So we're, we're, uh, in, 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 we're light years away from that kind of a level, that kind of ability. Everybody should have a Ksiva and a Chasimah Tova.